السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد uh, Quick question before we start I think last week we did uh, in detail we did the story of the conquest of Mecca The TV is not working um, Okay, no TV this week. <laughs> back to good old audio radio, back how it was in the 60s, whatever it was. So, uh, we, I think we did the conquest of Mecca last week and we finished the conquest of Mecca. But the question I have is did we do the introduction to the surah? No. Nothing? So, we didn't mention, like, for example, the names of the surah. Didn't do anything, huh? Just only the conquest of Mecca. Mention the names? So you mention the names, do we mention uh, that it's a Madani Surah? Yeah, 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 yeah. By Oh no, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> huh? That it's a Madani Surah. Um, okay, so we're still kind of, I think we got, uh, kind of went off on a tangent, but it's, it's relevant because obviously as we said, the Surah is concerning the conquest of Mecca or part of it relates to the conquest of Mecca, so we went through that story in detail. But um, just kind of reminding back to the introduction. There's a narration which I, I may have mentioned last week, uh, the narration of Ibn Abbas عنhuma, that is collected in the Musnad of Imam Ahmad that the Prophet, that he said rather, that when Allah revealed this surah, والفتح, the Prophet وسلم, took it as a signal, means of condolence, that the Prophet وسلم, his time was coming to an end. Right? So it was something which the Prophet ﷺ understood towards that it was something which, um, which was going to signify. To an interesting uh, point that some of the scholars mentioned when it comes to this particular surah, and that is which surah was the last surah, surah was the last surah to be revealed in the Quran. So it doesn't mean by that verses, right? Because we know that there are verses that came afterwards. In Baqarah and in other parts of the Quran, Ma'idah and so on, to be revealed in its entirety or in its totality. So there are three famous opinions amongst the scholars. The first of them, or amongst the companions rather, even. The first, Fatih, was the last surah to be revealed. And this was the opinion and the position of Abdullah ibn Abbas, and it's a position I think that many scholars, after as a surah in its entirety, this was the final surah to be revealed to the Prophet And we know that this surah, as we said, was revealed after the conquest of Mecca. After the conquest of Mecca. After the conquest of Mecca, I don't know, but after the conquest of Mecca, and I read that some scholars even consider it to be later, because the conquest of Mecca, as we said, is, was in the of the Hijrah. Some said that it was even later than this, the ninth of the Hijrah, that this surah was revealed. And maybe it was the eighth, and Allah knows best. But Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah, this narration in Sahih Muslim that uh, ibn Abdullah ibn Utbah, he said that ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah asked me what was the last surah, which was the last surah to be revealed from the Quran. Or rather, what the last surah was to be revealed from the Quran. And I replied to him, yes, I know. It was إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ And he said to me, you have spoken the truth. And the, the position that this is based upon, or rather the reasoning for this, 
is because this is, as we mentioned in the other narration that I just quoted from for you, in the Muslim of Imam Ahmad, we're saying that this is the surah that was, well, the signal to the Prophet wasallam that his time was coming to an end. So this was the position of Ibn Abbas. And something which uh, is like maybe uh, that is in uh, Al-Bukhari, the narration of Ibn Abbas عنهما, that he quotes from the time of Umar, عنه, when Umar used to have his council of, his shura council, his uh, consultative council, the people that he used to consult in issues of state and affairs of state, he would have, generally speaking, the senior companions. And the senior companions, when the, when the companions speak about seniority amongst them, obviously you have the ten that are promised paradise, but they are few in number, just ten. But normally when you speak about seniority, who are we speaking about? No, no, in terms of the companions. Who's senior amongst the companions? The Khulafa, but obviously the Khulafa in the time of Umar be the second one, right? So the companions generally amongst themselves at their time, in the time of Umar, for example, who would he consider to be the senior companions? Yeah. Not, but not just the Ashram Vashla, right? In the time of Umar. Mm, no. No, not just the Muhajirin. Oh, the wise of the No, not the wise For his legislative council, when he wants to consult people in issues of state and affairs of state, who's he going to be gathering to speak to? Which, who from amongst the companions? I don't mean like uh, by name. I mean like, you know, as a category of people, like the Ten Promised Paradise. Right? Like, yeah, the Badarin, right? The people of Badr. Right, Ahl Badr are considered to be the, the cream of the crop, if you like, or if the, the most uh, senior, the most major. Obviously, within Ahl Badr, the people of Badr, you have grades, right? You have the Khulafa, you have the Ten Promised Paradise, and so on, right? And you have those that accepted Islam earlier on and those that came later on. But generally speaking, the people of Badr are considered to be the most senior amongst the companions in, in station, in, in knowledge, in status, and so on. So Umar radiallahu anhu, he's generally gathering those types of people. It doesn't mean that all of the people of Badr are gathering because as we know there's like maybe 300 or over 300 of them in the time of Umar, they're still like still alive. So we're speaking about, you know, it's not like every single one of them has to come together. But these are the people that he's drawing uh, from when it comes to advice. But he would also add, as this narration Ibn Abbas is narrating about himself, that he would include Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma within that group of companions. And Ibn Abbas, as we know, is one of the youngest companions, the younger companions of the Prophet Sallallahu It said that when the Prophet Sallallahu died, he was in his teens, right? Maybe 16, 17. In fact, perhaps even younger, right? Maybe 12, 13, 14. That's how young he was in the time of the Prophet Sallallahu like early teens. And because there's a narration uh, that when the Prophet Sallallahu was on his final hajj, his farewell hajj, the famous hadith, that narrates the Hajj of the Prophet in detail, in explicit detail, is narrated by this companion, Ibn Abbas. But when Ibn Abbas, he mentions that when the Prophet was in Muzdalifa, right, the night of Muzdalifa, what happened after half the night? What did he do? What happens in Muzdalifa, half the night, Al Aqsalifa, and what then happens? Is certain people, no one's done her. Yeah, certain people leave early, right? They leave Muzdalifa after half the night elapses. Who, for example, the women, right? The elderly, children, and so on. So the Prophet sent these people ahead. And from amongst the people that he sent was Ibn Abbas, 
radiyallahu anhuma, showing that he was young in age, right? Young in age. Otherwise, he wouldn't have sent him. So the Prophet shows, so it shows that Ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhuma is relatively very young amongst the companions. So he didn't participate in Ibn Umar. Other companions are older than him, even though they're like, you know, around that same age group, but they're older because Ibn Umar radiyallahu anhuma attended some of the battles with the Prophet So Ibn Abbas says that Umar would enter me alongside these companions in his council and he would seek my advice. So some of them said to Umar, Oh Umar, why do you bring him, Ibn Abbas, when we have also sons of a similar age? Why do you call him and not call our children? Right? Bring them all together. And so Umar, Umar used to say, because he is, in terms of knowledge, what you know. Right? His knowledge surpasses the knowledge of others of a similar age. And then Ibn Abbas goes on to say that, and then on one occasion, Umar called me in whilst he was sitting with some of those companions. And he says, Ibn Abbas in the, in the narration of Bukhari says, and I think that he only called me in so as to show them. Right? Show them. So he called me in and he said to them, What do you say concerning the statement of Allah, Ida Ja'a Nasrullahi wa Fatih? So some of them said that it means that when Allah gives us victory and Allah grants us the conquest, we praise Allah and we glorify Allah and we seek Allah's forgiveness. And others from amongst the companions didn't say anything. They stayed quiet. So then Umar turned to me and he said, Oh Ibn Abbas, what do you say concerning this verse? He said that I said that this surah or this verse shows the Prophet time upon earth to an end. His death was coming to an end. So Umar said, and this is all that I know from this surah. This is what I know from this surah, meaning that I agree with his tafsir. And so again, this is an indication to show that this was one of the final surahs to be revealed in the Qur'an. So that's the first opinion, that it was surah al-Nasr, the final surah to be revealed from the Qur'an. The second opinion is what is mentioned by Al-Bara ibn Azib, and this is also clicked in the Bukhari, that the last surah to be revealed from the Qur'an was surah Bara'ah. What's surah Bara'ah? Surah Tawbah. Right? Surah Bara'ah is also known or more commonly known today as surah Tawbah. That's the second opinion, Surah Tawbah. The third opinion is the, is the statement and the opinion of Aisha, radiyallahu anha, and this is collected in the Muslim of Imam Ahmad, that a man by the name of Jubair, rahimahullahi, entered upon Aisha, radiyallahu anha, do you read Surah Al-Ma'idah? And he replied, yes. So she said, read it, for it was the last Surah to be revealed. So that which you find in it from the halal, make it halal. And that which you find in it from the haram, make it haram. And then he says, I asked her to describe the character of the Prophet ﷺ, and she said his character was the Qur'an. Right? So in this narration, we have Aisha, the mother of the believers, saying that the last surah to be revealed from the Qur'an was Surah Al-Ma'idah. So we have these three like distinct varying opinions. Right? One of the things that we have to understand is when we find differences of opinion, because obviously not all three can be the final surah to be revealed, or it has to be one or the other. What they're often speaking about, the companions and scholars, when they have these statements that seem, on, uh, if you like, apparently, on face value, they seem to be definitive. Right? It doesn't allow any scope for difference of opinion or uh, a workaround or reconciliation. Actually, what they're speaking about is a particular context. So... 
as later scholars came and mentioned, Surah Al-Nasr was the last surah to be revealed to the Prophet generally speaking. But Surah Al-Ma'idah was the last surah to be revealed that contained ahkam, rulings. And that's why Aisha radiallahu anha stipulates this in her narration. What you find from the halal, make it halal. What you find from the haram, make it haram. Meaning that whatever is in Surah Fa'idah was, was the last surah in terms of the rulings that Allah gave. There's no abrogation in Surah Ma'idah. Any of the rulings in Surah Ma'idah are not abrogated by other verses because it was the last surah to be revealed in terms of rulings. And Surah Bara'a or Surah Tawbah was the last surah to be revealed in terms of fighting and jihad and the rulings of warfare. Right? So each one has their own, if you like, context that they're speaking about. They're speaking from a certain angle. They're speaking about us. And that's why sometimes their general statements seem like they're definitive. But when you dig deep and you go through their explanation, you find that there is actually a, uh, you know, a, a reasoning as to why those companions differed. Right? And this is very common, not only in tafsir, but also in the fiqh, in, 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 in issues of fiqh, as we know. One of the greatest things that you can study in fiqh that helps you to understand why the scholars differed, and certain scholars in their books of fiqh, they, they focused on this issue, is what is called reasons for differing. Why did the scholars differ? Yeah, we know they differed into four opinions, ten opinions, two opinions, three opinions. But when you understand the reasoning why, not only does it help you to appreciate the depth of fiqh, but it also allows you to understand why there is that difference of opinion. Right? And that's why often like when we speak about, for example, you know, this surah has, was it revealed in Mecca, was it a Makki surah or a Madani surah? Right? And I often try to bring to you the reasoning why the scholars differed. Right? Because some scholars related to a question from the Quraysh. Another said that no, it was a question posed by the Jews of Medina. So once you understand that that's the reasoning behind it, no longer is it a difference, just you know, an issue of difference of opinion, but you understand that those scholars had a reasoning, they had a narration, they had a hadith, they had a statement, and that's what they considered to be the strongest statement or issue concerning that particular verse or that particular uh, surah, whatever it may be. Uh, another a narration that we find about is uh, related to the virtues of Surah Al-Nasr. So I think we all know, right? Everyone knows, and we covered it when we were doing Surah Al-Ikhlas. What is Surah Al-Ikhlas equivalent to? Equal to a third of the Quran. Have you ever come across a narration for Surah Al-Nasr? Quote from the Quran, right? And that's a narration. So the narration that is mentioned is in the Tirmidhi on the authority of Anas ibn Malik, radiyallahu anhu, and it's a longer narration than just um, about Surah Al-Nasr. Uh, said that the Prophet Sallallahu was sitting with the companions and he said to one of them, and he called him by name, and he said, Oh, so-and-so, have you married? And he said, No, O Messenger of Allah, I haven't married because I don't have that which I can marry with, meaning I don't have um, enough money for a dowry. Right? I can't afford to get married. I don't have anything to get married with. So the Prophet ﷺ said to him, Do you not have with you, قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٌ Meaning, don't you memorize, قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٌ He said, yes. The Prophet ﷺ said, that is equal to a third of the Qur'an. And then he said, and do you not have with you, إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ Don't you memorize the surah? He said, yes. He said, that is equal to a quarter of the Qur'an. And then he asked, do you not have with you, قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ Have you not memorized, قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ He said, yes. So he said that it is equal to a quarter of the Qur'an. And he asked him, and do you not memorize إِذَا زُلْزِلَتِ الْأَرْضُ زِلْزَالَهَا And he said, yes. And he said that it is equal to Qur'an. And then the Prophet ﷺ said to him, so marry, get married. Right? Marry, marry. Tazawaj, tazawaj. Get married, 
get married. Meaning that you can use these surahs that you've memorized as your dowry, right? You teach them to your future wife. This hadith is collected, as I said, in the Tirmidhi, in the Muslim Imam Ahmad, in Al-Bayhaqi. Uh, however, the scholar said it is weak. It is a weak narration, right? But scholars still use it, and you'll often find it in the books of Tafirun. They mention the same narration, Surah al uh, as one of the virtues of this surah, that it is equal to a quarter of the Qur'an, and Allah knows best. So exactly the same that we said. Is it a quarter of the Qur'an? The question is in terms of reading it or in terms of reward or whatever. Exactly the same as we said for Surah Al-Ikhlas. And the difference of opinion amongst the scholars there is in meaning. Is it an actual reward? Um, you know, is it in, uh, equivalent to uh, like the hakam or the, the, the content of the Qur'an, the quarters and so on and so forth? It's the same like discussion that the scholars have for both. But the discussion on these surahs is less so because the scholars said it's a weak hadith so they don't normally... When it's a weak hadith, you don't find that the scholars often go into it in as much detail and uh, with as much scope as they would if it was an authentic narration. So we come on to the first verse. Right? The first verse of the surah, إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ When the victory of Allah comes and the conquest. This surah is a surah, as we mentioned, it's a surah that tells and informs the Prophet ﷺ that his time is coming to an end. Right? It's a surah that tells the Prophet ﷺ your message, your mission, your da'wah, it's coming to an end. And this is approximately after 20 odd years. So all of the Meccan years have gone and most of the Medinan years have gone. The conquest of Mecca has taken place. And now the Prophet wasallam is given this indication that he's going to pass away wasallam. That's mentioned in a hadith, uh, the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha. And she says that the Prophet wasallam used to say, and he would often say, Subhanallah wa bihamdih astaghfirullaha wa atubu ilayh. Glory be to Allah and all praises for him. I seek forgiveness from Allah and I repent to him. So I said, O Messenger of Allah, I see you often repeating the statement, right? He's constantly repeating the statement over and over again. So the Prophet said, My Lord, that I would see a sign, an alama, a sign, a signal in my ummah. And that if I were to see it, then I should make the statement often and I should repeat it often. And then he said, and indeed that sign was Ida Ja'a Nasrullahi Wal Fatih, the conquest of Mecca. And when you see the people entering into the region of Allah in droves, Allah commanded me to praise Allah, seek Allah's forgiveness. For he is the one often accept repentance and so the Prophet ﷺ is taking that message and is applying it and that's a very interesting concept for a number of reasons not least because of which uh, not least of which is because the Prophet ﷺ is being told that towards the end of his life and you know the Prophet ﷺ, his whole life is ibadah right the Prophet ﷺ, his whole life is worship it's dedicated to the obedience of Allah it's dedicated to dedicating to spread the religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and we know that the Prophet ﷺ in terms of his salah, in terms of his Qur'an, in terms of his fasting, in terms of his charity, he was like something amazing and unique, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. But now the Prophet ﷺ is being told that just because oh, now that your time is coming to an end, you need to increase in dhikr and you need to increase in seeking Allah's forgiveness. Right? And some of the scholars took from this uh, a principle 
and that is established in Islam, or it is a principle in Islam, therefore it is a practice of Sunnah in Islam, that when someone feels that their end is coming near, either because of an illness, that they don't believe that they will be cured from and Allah knows best, but they think that it's a terminal illness, or because of old age, they feel that now their time is coming to an end, that they can increase in worship and that they should increase in worship. Right? So sometimes you have this attitude that if someone's old and now they start praying more and they go to the masjid more and so on, we're like, oh yeah, now he's praying more. And people start to almost dismiss that person wanting to do more ibadah at that advanced age. Because now they're old, now they want to pray. Right? right? Now they're old, now they want to give more sadaqah. Now what do they do for the first 40, 50 years? And no doubt, obviously, a person should be worshipping Allah throughout their lives to the best of their ability. But to increase once a person reaches old age and they fear that their end is near, or because of some illness that they fear will take them, then that is an establishment because this is A, being commanded to do, and B, is actually doing. So the Prophet ﷺ is being told, your time is coming to an end, and now the Prophet ﷺ is increasing in a dua that he wouldn't make before in this way. Yes, the Prophet ﷺ would seek forgiveness from Allah, he would say subhanallah, he would say alhamdulillah, but now he's being told to make a dua in a specific wording, a specific way, Subhanakallahumma uh, uh, wa bihamdik, Allahumma ghfirli, right? which is the narration that he would make in salah. Or this one, Bihamdih, astaghfirullah wa atubu ilayh, which seems to be a narration about him making this dua outside of salah, just generally. He would make this type of dhikr. So therefore, that is an established practice, a sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Number two, this statement also shows that when a person is coming towards the end of their life, the most important thing that they need to focus on is, number one, seeking Allah's forgiveness, right? and asking and repenting to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but number two, making dhikr. Right? And there's a couple of reasons. Number one is because these two acts of worship are relatively physically easy to perform. So when a person's in a severe illness, or if they become extremely elderly in age, as we know, right, it becomes difficult for them to pray because they can't stand as long, they can't make rukur, they can't make sujood. It's difficult for them physically to pray. It's difficult for them to fast because they find fasting burdensome and tiring and it takes their energy, saps their energy. Maybe difficult for them to give charity because not everyone has that wealth and that money. And obviously at that time of life, people are thinking about their, you know, their children and their grandchildren and the people that will inherit from them and the inheritance that they're going to leave behind changes, right? The whole dynamics change. But one thing that is relatively simple and easy for them to do is to make dhikr and to seek Allah's forgiveness by saying, Astaghfirullah wa atubu ilayh, subhanallah. You know the general sunnah of adhkar and as, uh, refers to these adhkar in terms of their reward, their virtue, in many hadith and they are great. So Imam Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said in the tafsir of this first verse of Surah Al-Nasr, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam that once you have the conquest of Mecca, the bulk of your mission is complete. The major part of your message is complete. That doesn't mean that there were other things that would take place because we know that after the conquest of Mecca, people are still the conquest of Mecca, we have the Battle of Tabuk. After the conquest of Mecca, Hajj becomes an obligation, right? And the Prophet sallallahu makes his farewell Hajj. And there are other rulings and things that are still going on. But your main message, your main Message which is what? To spread Islam, right? And to make sure that the da'wah is at a strong place and that was signified with the conquest of Mecca, that signal that Islam is being spread. And then that's why some of the scholars said that it's after the ninth year 
that this uh, surah was revealed because the Battle of Tabuk took place in the ninth is also what is known as Amul Wufud. Amul Wufud means the years of the year of delegations. Right? When the delegations of Arabia came, the different tribes, and they came on wholesale, they started to enter into Islam. And that's what Allah is referring to in the second verse. So Ibn Kathir says that Allah is saying to the Prophet therefore when you see these signs, now it is time for you to prepare for the meeting with your Lord subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? The meeting with Allah by glorifying Allah, praising Allah, seeking Allah's forgiveness. Right? Seeking Allah's forgiveness. Some of the scholars said that the Prophet doesn't need to seek Allah's forgiveness. Right? Allah already forgave him for all of his sins. So how, why, why is the Prophet being instructed to seek forgiveness from sins when Allah has already forgiven him? And why is he being instructed to praise Allah and glorify Allah when Allah has already given him the greatest reward? So some of them said it's as a for his ummah. The meaning is, teach your ummah this is what they should be doing. And we'll mention towards the end of the tafsir of this surah, the statement of Ibn Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala concerning the istighfar and how it's often in the Sharia mentioned at the end of an action. Right? You do a, perform an act of worship and then you're told to seek Allah's forgiveness after like the salah, like after wudu and so on. So uh, that's one, right? some of the scholars said that it says as an example said, no, the Prophet ﷺ increases in his station. He still increases in his station and he comes closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Allah Azza wa continues to favor him and continues to give him from his bounties subhanahu wa ta'ala right? and we know that the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam used to consider this to be a means of gratitude right to continuously worship allah even though allah has given him forgiveness allah azza wa has given him that reward he would say in terms of the prayer afala akunu abdan shakura grateful servant to allah azza wa meaning that just because allah has given me this doesn't mean that i stop if anything it means that i should increase right? i should do more and i should do more Imam Al-Qurtubi, uh, going on to the verse itself, and Imam Al-Qurtubi and Imam Al-Shawkani, rahimahumullah in their tafsir, either, the word Ida, Ida in the Arabic language they said has multiple meanings. One of them, or as it pertains to this surah, there are two predominant meanings. The first one is the one that you creations of the Quran, in fact probably all of them, and that is that Ida means when. And that's often how it's translated this verse is, when the victory of Allah comes and the conquest. Right, that's the way that it's usually translated. And no doubt, either in the Arabic language, generally used in the Arabic language, refers to when. Right, that's what it's normally used to. Either jaa zaydun, either dakhala abdullah, either and so on. When something happens. Right, when is either in the Arabic language. And that's what some of the scholars said that it refers to. And that is that either can mean qad, qad, surely. Right, surely. Verily, indeed. So Allah Azza wa Jal is not referring to when, as if it's something you know which will happen or may happen or is going to happen in the future. But because this is a surah revealed after the fact, after the conquest of Mecca, the scholars, some of the scholars of Tafsir said actually the meaning is Qad. In the victory of Allah comes and the conquest of Mecca, right? Or surely when it comes, right? Or verily when it comes, Qad. Meaning that it's something which has happened and will happen, right? So because it's something which, which has taken place, Allah Azza wa is referring to it as something that took place with certainty. Indeed, surely, verily, when 
it comes or when it happens, or surely as it happens, then this is what you should do, O Prophet Al-Imam Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala also in his tafsir, إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ When the victory of Allah comes. He says Nasr means Allah's help and Allah's aid. Right? When Allah helps you to achieve something, helps you, aids you, assists you, all of these are meanings of the Nasrullah, right? the victory of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَالْفَتْحِ إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ When the victory of Allah, the aid of Allah comes, right? because Nasr uh, is often or sometimes used in Arabic language also to refer to victory. Right, to refer to victory. But it's, uh, Nasr is, is probably more commonly uh, translated and used as aid or assistance or help when the help of Allah comes and the conquest. Right? What is the conquest? The scholars differed uh, over what, which conquest is exactly being referred to. The opinion, and the opinion that you find in uh, many of the books of, of Tafsir, is that it refers to the conquest of Mecca. It refers to the conquest of Mecca, and this was the opinion of Al-Hassan and Mujahid, rahimahumullah, from the Tabi'een, and others from amongst the Tabi'een. Al-Imam ibn Kathir, in his tafsir, Imam al-Tabari, in his tafsir, Ibn Ashur, in his tafsir, they said that this is by ijma' right? consensus of the scholars of tafsir, that the fath, the conquest being referred to in this verse, is the conquest of Mecca. Right? And that's because of a statement that is mentioned in Al-Bukhari, a narration in Al-Bukhari, a narration of a companion by the name of Amr ibn Salama, radiyallahu anh, that he said, that when the day of the conquest took place, meaning the conquest of Mecca, the people rushed to accept Islam. And that's because the Arabs used to say that if the Prophet, that leave the Muslims, leave them alone, the Quraysh and the Prophet ﷺ, the Muslims, leave, let them be. We see what happens between them. Who wins from amongst them? Will the Muslims gain victory over Quraysh? Or will Quraysh gain victory over the Muslims? So if he wins, then he is surely a Prophet. So once they saw that he won, they started to accept Islam in droves. Right? And this is the statement of Ibn Kathir also in his tafsir. That the Quraysh, or the Arabs, generally outside of Quraysh, outside of Mecca, the different Arab tribes all venerated the Kaaba, venerated uh, Mecca, and then because of the custodianship of the Kaaba, when they saw the dispute between the Quraysh and the Muslims and the Prophet wasallam, they decided that they wouldn't get involved. Right? And that's generally the case, other than perhaps in a Hazab or in a few other incidents, generally they don't, they don't really get involved, right? Other than perhaps Ta'if, unlike a couple of instances. But generally speaking, at the beginning, they're, they're very much on the side of Quraysh. But they don't physically get involved in this issue. But they were waiting to win. Do the Muslims win or do the Quraysh win? And they're thinking, according to Sumerian al-Bukhari, they're thinking, and it's mentioned, by the way, in other places as well, that their thinking was that if the Quraysh win, then this man can't have been a prophet. He's a, false, he's a false prophet. Whereas if he wins, then that is a sign that he is a true prophet. So when he, when he won, the Prophet won in the 80th of the Hijrah, he overcomes Quraysh, Quraysh surrender, Quraysh give him Mecca themselves, become Muslim, they accept Islam. The other Arab tribes understood, or they saw this as a sign of his truthfulness, and therefore they too began to accept Islam. Right? And that's why we know in the 60 of the Hijrah, the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, what is the number of the Muslims, roughly speaking? 
no, no, the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, 60 of the Hijrah, roughly, no one, 1400, right? They're, they're the one, there are others that are left behind in Medina, so maybe like 2000-ish, maybe, right? But 1400 that actually attended with the Prophet in Hudaybiyah. And then, fast forward two years, eighth, eighth year of the Hijrah, conquest of Mecca, how many Muslims now? 10,000. Fast forward two years again, or less, in the farewell Hajj of Mecca, how much are they now estimating the Muslims to be? 100,000 or more, right? Some say that 100,000 is just a rough estimate, right? But that there were many more, because not all of the Muslims attended the farewell Hajj. So you can see like the rapidity or the rapid nature of how the increase of Muslims takes place from 1400 to 10,000, right? And 1400, by the way, you know, Islam has been around for like, what, 16, 18, 19 years before then? 1,400 Muslims. Then in two years in the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, because there's no warfare, there's no fighting, no, no open enmity, Muslims increase. And now once the Arabs start to accept Islam and the Arabian Peninsula, all of it more or less becomes Muslim, we have the Muslims numbering 100,000 right, within that time. And that is what Allah Azza wa Jalla is referring to in the second verse when he says, and when you see the people entering into the region of Allah in droves, in groups, in big quantities, right, big numbers. Allah is referring to that. So some of the scholars, conquest is referring to the conquest of Mecca. That is what Allah is referring to. And like we said, Ibn Kathir, At-Tabari, Ibn Ashur, others from the scholars of tafsir, they said this is bil ittifaq by consensus and by agreement of the scholars of tafsir. But actually, in reality, that's not the case. There is a difference of opinion, and it's not an issue of consensus or agreement. Right? And sometimes the scholars, like Ibn Kathir, and it's not, you know, it's not, I don't think that it's um, someone of the stature of At-Tabari and Ibn Kathir would have been unaware that there were differences of opinion on this issue. Right? Because it's, it's well narrated, and it's not just one opinion or two opinions, it's multiple opinions, as to what it's referring to. However, sometimes the scholars say bil ittifaq, right? and ittifaq means by agreement rather than by consensus. And you know, it possibly can, it can mean like the same thing. But ittifaq, he says by agreement, meaning that he's dismissing those other not worthy of consideration. So yes, there are scholars that it's attributed to, and some of them even attributed to some of the companions, but these are very like weak, almost not worthy of consideration. So this is by agreement of the majority of the scholars, right? By agreement of you know the well-known um, opinions that exist, there is only one opinion worthy of consideration, right? So Imam Ibn Kathir, At-Tabari, Ibn Ashur, and it is the opinion of the majority uh, that is that it is referring to in the surah is referring to the conquest of Mecca. But as we said, it's not an issue of ijma, it's not an issue of consensus. The second opinion, therefore which is the opinion of Ibn Abbas anhuma, and Sa'id ibn Jubayr rahimahullah, who is one of the illustrious famous scholars of the Tabi'een, they said that it refers to a general conquest, Fathul Madain, the conquest of not just Mecca, but all of the cities that would come after it. Because as we know, very, very quickly, Ta'if becomes Muslim, and you know, like Najran becomes Muslim, or at least they, they kind of like accept that the Prophet is in charge and they pay him the, the, they pay him money, taxes in order for security and safety. And other parts of the Arab world and the Arabian Peninsula 
start to come under, under the leadership of the Muslims. So therefore, they said that it's not a specific conquest that Allah is referring to, but more generally conquests. Right? So the conquest, not only the conquest of Mecca, but the subsequent conquests that take place as well. And others from amongst the scholars said, it is the conquest of all of the lands. All of the lands. Right? So, um, not just, for example, the Arab lands, but even beyond that. Right? And that seems to be a weaker opinion because the Prophet ﷺ, as we know, didn't live to see the conquest of those lands. Didn't live to see the conquest of, for example, Persia or you know, the Byzantine Roman lands of Asham or any of those other lands. The Prophet ﷺ, and yet there that took place. There's another opinion that says that it refers to the, uh, the conquest of knowledge. The conquest of knowledge, right? That knowledge is what was spread, and that's what's being spread amongst the Arabs and amongst the different tribes, and they learn about Islam and so on. And that's the conquest that Allah is referring to, the conquest of knowledge and information and so on, rather than the physical conquest of Mecca. And that opinion also seems to be far-fetched, because that doesn't seem to go with the Quran is referring to in this surah. Uh, there is a narration of Ibn Abbas عنهما, that he said that Nasrullah in this verse, that the Nasrullah is referring to the Treaty of Hudaybiyyah. And the Fath, the conquest is referring to the conquest of Mecca. So he kind of brought the two together. Right? And as we said, no doubt, one kind of like precipitated the other, right? One was a precursor to the other. So we have the, and as a result of that, as we discussed last week, it was because of the explicit breaking of the terms of that treaty, those events led up to what would be called, therefore, the conquest of the city of Mecca. Right. But again, that's an opinion which uh, Ibn Abbas mentions. Uh, the majority of the scholars of Tafsir say that the Nasrullah is more gen- general. It is Allah's assistance. Throughout the life of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, right? So it's an assistance which the Prophet sallallahu was given. Rahimahullah, wa Sheikh Shukriya rahimahullah in his tafsir of Wa'ul Bayan, he says, "Ida jaa Nasrullahi wal Fatih." Allah azza wa jal mentions victory or aid and help and assistance, and he mentions the conquest, and he links the two together, as if Allah is saying, every conquest requires Allah's aid. Right? And with Allah's aid, you get the conquest and the victory. So he asks the question, therefore, are the two necessary, like are they interlinked? Is one necessary for the other to take place? And then he also asks the second question, and that is, why does Allah ascribe aid and assistance to himself? He says, Nasrullah, the aid and the help of Allah came, whereas the fath, the conquest, is not attributed to Allah. But Allah isn't the one who gave the conquest, right? The fath is left as open-ended. Maybe because like in certain Arabic states that the present here are given on, they also have conquests. So it is possible for someone to have a conquest, but the, con- the, the conquest referred to here is with the aid of Allah as opposed to the aid of normal people. <laughs> because everything takes place by the will of Allah, right? So even if it's not something which Allah necessarily aided them with. But it could be a neutral issue, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be like... So it is linked, obviously, because like as we said, right, Allah's aid 
brings about victory. Right? But the question here is, why is Allah's, Allah's aid or aid linked to Allah, whereas victory is not linked to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? It's a reminder. What Shaykh Shaqeeti rahimahullah says, and it's an interesting point, is that Allah's aid and assistance to himself subhanahu wa ta'ala is reminding us not just of that one incident, but of the previous 20-odd years. And all of the assistance of Allah that culminates with the conquest of Mecca. The conquest of Mecca is, if you like, the culmination. Right? That's the end, that's the result. But what about the 20 years before? Every single stage that Allah helped and aided the Muslims led them to this event. Right? Which shows, and you know, it's like a, an amazing verse, that whenever you want to achieve something amazing and something good and something great and significant, it is often many years of hard work that Allah places you on a path and helps you in certain ways and keeps back from you certain things, withholds certain things that leads you to that eventual result, which perhaps you couldn't see, right? It's not perhaps something which you, you know, understood or could see, right? It's like similar to the hadith of uh, the Hazab, right? In the conquest of, uh, in the battle of Hazab, the trench, when the companions, they can't shift, they can't break, won't move. So they go to the Prophet and they say, oh, Messenger of Allah, there's a rock, no one can break it, we can't shift it. So the Prophet comes and he strikes it. And he strikes it once, right? And remember, the companions are what? Hungry and tired and dusty. And they're living in fear because any day this amazing, or this massive army will come and lay siege to the city of Medina. And within the city of Medina are their wives and their children and the elderly. And so everyone's there. And the Muslims and all of the confederates, right? All of the Arabs have more or less ganged up upon the Muslims. So what does the Prophet say? He strikes the rock once and what does he say? Allahu Akbar. It's as if I see that we have the treasures of Rome. And then it strikes it again. Allahu Akbar. It's as if I see that we have the treasures of Persia. Right? And so the Prophet وسلم, is showing that all of these events, yes, it's difficult, yes, there's hardship, yes, Uhud was hard. And we were exiled from Mecca, that was hardship. And all of those issues, all of the companions that have died, everything that's happened. But eventually, what is the result? A day will come. And this is obviously something which then took place even after the life of the Prophet Some of you not even in the time of Abu Bakr or Umar. It's like many years later on. And so this is something which will take place, but all of this leads up to that. Right? And that's often the case. Right? Even, uh, you know, like subhanAllah, like in our lives, right? You're, when you go through hardship and hardship and hardship, and now maybe you get to a stage where things are very good, and things are easy, and things are, you know, the things are good. But not only do you forget your struggles, the struggles that you went through, but you forget about the struggles of your parents and your grandparents, right? Most of us wouldn't be sitting here if our parents probably didn't make the decision to come over to this country for work, right? To earn a living. They came to this country to earn a living because they were country, didn't actually earn a living in this come with the intention to stay and raise their families here. The idea was we come, we spend a few years, we make some money, and we're going back home. That's why most of them didn't bring their wives, they didn't bring their children, didn't bring anyone. Right? But then what happens over time, that decision leads on to another decision, to another decision, and here we are today. Right? And so Allah Azza wa Jal, and this is, there's an amazing dua in Surah Al-Naml, where the Prophet Sulaiman alayhi salam, in the story of the, the ant, when he sees and he hears the statement of to, to her colony of ants, and then, فَتَبَسَّمَ ضَاحِكًا مِّنْ قَوْلِهَا he remembers Allah's blessings and his favors and he smiles. 
And then he makes a dua. وَقَالَ رَبِّ أَوْزِعْنِي أَنْ أَشْكُرَ نِعْمَتَكَ الَّتِي أَنْعَمْتَ عَلِيَّ وَعَلَى وَالِدَيْهِ And he says, Oh Allah, grant me the ability to show you gratitude for the blessings that you bestowed upon me and upon my parents before me. And this is an amazing dua because Sulaiman understands that it's not just him, but it is his father Dawood that Allah also favored. And it is because of those favors that Allah bestowed upon him from many years, even before Sulaiman is born, that leads him to now this eventual place where he's at. Right? And that's the same with every single person. So it's as if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is speaking about it because Allah Azza wa Jal, his aid as he's mentioning in this surah, isn't just the aid that Allah gives on the battlefield. No, it's the help that Allah gives in terms. It's the help that Allah Azza wa gives in terms of strengthening the iman of the Muslims. It's the strength that Allah Azza wa the help that Allah gives in the ability for the Muslims to seek knowledge and to learn and to memorize the Quran and to come closer to Allah. It's the strength and the help that Allah Azza wa gives in terms of facilitating them to be people of worship who worship Allah and come closer to Allah and people who obey Allah Azza wa Jalla and perform acts of obedience. All of that is from the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then yes, which also gives in terms of military might and in terms of the fear that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cast within the enemies of the Muslims. All of those issues come together. And when you have all of them together, then what you have in the end is the conquest of Mecca. Right? And that's the same for every single person. Allah Azza wa helps you in certain ways, withholds from you certain things, but at the end you will always find that Allah Azza wa has decreed for the believer good. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala always decrees us and what is beneficial for them. Right? And so, uh, and that's like a very interesting point, right? and that's why uh, Shaykh Shaqidi, rahimahullah, in his tafsir, he says, therefore, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is implicitly mentioning, right? trying to combine between those different uh, statements of what the conquest is referring to. Allah Azza wa is referring in a way, implicitly, to the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, as Ibn Abbas said. And he's referring to the conquest of Mecca, because that is the major conquest that Allah is also showing implicitly that there will be other things that will come. That just after, as after those 20 odd years of hardship and difficulty and striving and trials and tribulations, you now have this crowning achievement and glory of the conquest of Mecca, then likewise that will continue in the future. If you continue upon this path, you hold on to the path of Allah, you hold on to the Sunnah of the Prophet you will continue upon this path of success. And that's what they do, right? They go on and they beat the... And then after the death of the Prophet the Roman Empire collapses and the Persians collapse and the Muslims spread their empire wide and far, right? Until it reaches the southern tips of Spain and it reaches up to, you know, like Uzbekistan and... Azerbaijan and that part of the world and all of North Africa and so on. Allah Azza wa helps the Muslims, not just with the death of the Prophet or the conquest of Mecca. And so that's an interest, interesting point which Sheikh Shaqiti rahimahullah mentions in his defense. We'll, uh, we'll stop there, inshallah. Um, any questions? Anything online? How many people were there in Tori? How many people were there in what? Which story? I wasn't reading a story. How many people in, in what? The conquest of Mecca? The conquest of Mecca had 10,000 Muslims. Anyone else? Any other questions? Okay. Barakallah feekum.
وصلى على نبينا محمد وعلى اله وصحبه اجمعين